Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the McGill International Review. Today's episode is going to be about the state of the teaching profession in the U.S. and the way that it's affecting both teachers and students. Because you see, teachers in the U.S. are not doing very well right now. In fact, that's probably a bit of an understatement. I think it's more accurate to say that teachers right now in the U.S. are feeling more under pressure, more demoralized, and more understaffed than they have been in recent memory. There's this one study, this working paper that was published um, more than a year ago now from the Annenberg Institute for School Reform at Brown University. One of the findings that it discovered is that the number of new entrants into the job profession has fallen by roughly a third over the last decade. And the proportion of college graduates that go into teaching is at a 50-year low. So yeah, the situation is pretty dire. So a lot of today's episode is devoted to unpacking some of the causes for why teachers are so understaffed and demoralized in the country today. So we talk a lot about many of the different causes, and for that, I thought that there was no better expert to talk about this topic than Jessica Gross, an opinion writer for the New York Times. I had her on in the past to talk about some of the general causes and effects of the decline of religion in modern society, and one of the conclusions that we came to is just the fact that this is really complicated and there are no easy solutions or easy answers or even easy monocausal causes to complex situations like this. And one of the findings we found for this is pretty similar, that this is really complicated. So this episode was a bit exploratory in trying to find all the different facets in terms of the ways that teachers are demoralized. And it all starts with a discussion about the way that schools were closed during the pandemic and the way that school closures, specifically pandemic-induced school closures, might factor into teacher demoralization in the present day. Hope you enjoy. Shall we get to it? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Jessica Gross, thank you so much for taking the time to come back onto this podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, as always. Yeah. Um, so I guess to begin, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, your own experiences with regards to pandemic-induced school closures? Because I think that's a pretty neat avenue into this discussion about uh, teacher supply. Sure. Um, you know, I was a parent of two young children uh, when 2020 hit. Uh, I had a second grader and a preschooler. And so as I was reporting on it, I was living it, you know. When the world shut down in March, uh, my husband and I were trying to recreate school badly while also trying to do our jobs. Uh, And it was not a good situation. And we had obviously the best case scenario of that situation in which we had jobs that could be done remotely. uh, And a lot, you know, every other resource in the book. Uh, But I think, you know, as the school closures, dragged on uh, in many places in the United States for longer than, you know, I think most people think that they should have, depending on the parts of the country you were in. Um, You know, there were a lot of knock-on effects. Uh, Some of them were predictable, some of them were not. Um, I think 
sort of broadly speaking, uh, and there was just a great piece in The New Yorker about this, uh, what happened during the pandemic was a lot of educational norms were broken. Uh, and we are still trying as a society to get those norms back. Yeah, I think that I think a lot of policymakers sort of drastically underestimated how large the consequences of like school closures would be for children during the pandemic. Yeah, um, and I mean, just to uh, the piece was called "Has School Become Optional?" by Alec McGillis. I recommend everyone should read it. It was, you know, really articulated a lot of uh, the ideas about chronic absenteeism and the data that I've been looking at and hearing about from you know teachers and then also experts who study the the topic. Yeah, but then I guess the logical question to answer as a response to that is: Do you think that school has become optional? No, uh, I don't at all. I think there is a way. I think there's a lot of things going on. I think number one, like, let's talk about sort of the different problems. Um, and because I think there's actually like a, a set of different problems. Some of them are with K through 12 education. Some of them are with higher education in the United States. Um, but let's start with K through 12. So um, I think there was already a chronic absentee problem, um, especially in big cities, especially among uh, lower income families who may have struggled with transportation, um, with just the basics of everyday life to the extent that it is really hard to get their children to school consistently for a variety of sort of bigger societal failures that, you know, schools can't control. And so all those things got exacerbated. And I think for that population of people, they, you know, at, per Alex McGillis's great reporting, like, you know, uh, there's sort of a feeling that, oh, one day doesn't matter, a couple days here or there. And they don't think about the fact that every day builds on itself. And behaviorally and academically, the more days you miss, the harder it will be to be integrated into an educational community and just basically like learn how to be in a society because that is par partially what school does, right? It's not just academics, though that obviously is a really important, you know, <laughs> and to me should be imp more important to more people. Um, but, you know, just the sort of routine and be and having to deal with a lot of different kinds of people that may not be your favorite people, those are important life skills that need to be developed and I think are really, really important and maybe we don't talk enough about. Yeah. Um, and But you're also seeing this sort of, um, and this is, I think, among all socioeconomic classes, um, a level of disrespect towards educators that I find really depressing because I just don't... I was a garbage second grade teacher like I was very bad at it <laughs> and I don't think that I'm a stupid person well um, I think most of us would be garbage second grade teachers to be honest yeah so I just don't I, I I actually find myself struggling to understand how parents could come out of the pandemic experience and think oh I could do as good a job as my kid's teacher um so you know I I think that among some people there is a desire to give 
their kid a highly individualized and bespoke educational experience, which just is not possible. Um, definitely quite difficult in public schools, even in private schools, like where kids do get more individualized attention, you know, you, there's still standardization. Uh, and I think some people, you know, this is a, a small minority of people just really bristle at that. And I'm, I just don't know that that's good for, um, again, all of us living in a society together. <laughs> yeah. But, okay. But like, let's, let's say that I was to, I were to put on my optimistic hat, like, what do you think are the chances that like, there was a silver lining in terms of like, the really terrible parts of like, school closures from the pandemic did make te like did make parents a little bit more sympathetic to the plight of teachers? Like, do you think that happened? I think for some people that definitely happened. Um, I also think like, I think there are a lot of important and unanswered questions around American education um, that are more in the mainstream of conversation, which I think is important. So like, I've heard this comparison made to the American healthcare system. In the US, we spend more money to have worse outcomes than a lot of our peer nations. And we really should try to figure out why that is. Well, you could um, argue it's because, like, I think you, you could make the argument that it's because we pay doctors too much, which is like an inverse problem of um, teacher supply. It, it's These are complicated, really. That's the other thing. It's like, you know, I think we talked about this with the religion stuff. It's like these huge societal problems, these huge societal changes, they're always complicated, multifaceted. Also, the United States is a huge country. And very different when in different places right and I really struggle to get this right when I do education reporting um, I don't want to make sweeping as much as I can help it I want to say things that are true without being sweeping generalizations because there are just so many school districts and because of the localized more localized way we do education in the U.S. which very few countries do it this way um, not actually none that I know of, but I'm, I don't want to, you know, I'm not an expert expert on international mm -hmm. comparisons. So I don't want to say yeah. no countries. Um, you know, the way that like every state has its own standards and every district within every state, like there is a lot of localized control, um, which, you know, again, some people could argue is good, I think creates a lot of problems, uh, and is part of the reason why there's, you know, the outcomes and the there's just like this lack of standardization of, of around the, the country that I think is, is, is a struggle. Yeah. But then, so I guess when it comes to like conveying complexity in your pieces to try to like not make sweeping generalizations, how do you like convey something of like, it used to be like partially true and now it's slightly more partially true. Like this thing used to be like 30% the case and now it's like 50% the case. Like how do you convey that? Um, well, I will say in terms of the absentee issue, which, um, I think the chronic absentee issue, that is crystal clear. It has increased basically everywhere. It has increased in some places worse than others. Um, but the, I mean, the researchers I've talked to have said they've never seen anything like this. Um, just in terms of the, how broad the effects are that it does actually, you know, it is, uh, has different impacts depending on de demography, but, uh, across the board there's more chronic absenteeism among everybody um and so you know this is one of the times where it's like i don't have to have a lot of caveats it is just a big deal 
Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately so. But then I think something that's even more unfortunate is that um, student absenteeism is a big problem that's one of the contributors for problems with regards to teacher shortages. But yeah. that is unfortunately not the only one. Um, there are plenty of others. So Yeah, but I do think the absenteeism actually is upstream of a lot of the other problems. So I've reported on multiple times how teachers um, are, since the pandemic, are just reporting a lot of beha more behavioral issues and a lot more extreme behavioral issues. And when you are not going to school every day in a routine way, and it is often the kids with more behavioral problems who are less likely to be going to school every day, you know, the behavior gets worse because it's just, again, it's not part of the habit. And so, you know, there, these issues uh, are somewhat interconnected. Yeah. So maybe it's like um, like a negative feedback loop where the the student absenteeism negatively contributes to the other factors and then the other factors negatively negatively contribute to more student absenteeism. And then it just. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. you could say that. But I mean, it's like, you know, the kids who are from stable middle and upper middle and upper families, um, you know, I'm not worried about them. <laughs> like, yeah, I think don't don't worry too much about the dream orders. Yeah, yeah, they're they're gonna be fine. Um, you know, and I count my family among this. But you know, my kids was it fun? No, they were fine. They're fine. I, I am not worried in the long run um, about that. But I am worried that because this, I don't know what percentage of kids will have basically no, you know, lasting effects from this that the gaps between, you know, kids whose families are roughly on, I, I think we talked about the success sequence before, you know, their parents are married before they had kids and they went to college and they did, you know, ticked off all the boxes of, you know, doing well in this country. Um, the gap between the children of those people, myself included, and between, and, the people who are not doing so well is just it's going to be exacerbated by this uh the hiccup caused by pandemic you know school yeah. closures etc yeah so like to I, i'd love to spend all day bashing school closures but i guess <laughs> yeah yeah I, I, well, I really yeah go ahead i mean i think you know and i you know, New York did a pretty Wait, good sorry, job. Wait, uh, sorry, could you could you start the answer again? I think your audio. Oh, sure. Out. No, I just sighed deeply because I'm like, <laughs> like it's such a like. I don't, I don't feel like it is useful at this point to relitigate a lot of what happened um, because I think I want to give administrators in most places the benefit of the doubt that they did the best that they could in a very difficult time. Um, but I do think, you know, I live in New York City, so I know our school system the best. And I was pleased that, you know, they did physically open schools in the fall of 2020. It was hybrid until the spring, but, you know, they weren't like, I think the it was clear at that point that fully keeping the school closed for the entire 20, 2021 school year was not a good idea. and. Had I lived in one of those places where, you know, it was fully, you know, closed for a year and a half. Like, I just don't, I don't see, I, I understand that 
was a justification at the time, but like even at the time, I didn't think that that was yeah the the correct assess risk assessment. Everyone yeah. was trying to do a risk assessment. I don't think that was the correct one. Yeah, but I don't. I I I don't have. I don't find it useful to relitigate. I know a lot of people do. Uh, I and I don't find it. I, it's more like okay, it's done. It happened. <laughs> let's yeah. like let's work together. I mean, I guess you know, I'm not terribly worried that we will have another pandemic like that in the near term. I guess it's the only value I could see in relitigating is like if this happens again soon, we need to actually have a plan instead of just like playing defense, right? Like that was I think part of the problem is that like no one had any kind of plans for this, right? Um, so I, I guess the, to me, the only sort of disappointing out, I mean, I really hope this doesn't happen, (laughs) but like, I would hope that public health experts and schools have thought through if this happens again in our lifetimes, like, can we have a better idea of how to deal with it based on all of the things that did happen? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I really hope so as well. But then I guess the question is like, like, what is the data on the extent to which, like, certain students may or may not have recovered from the learning loss from school closures? Um, so my sense is that, you know, there has been some recovery. It's not, you know, the the numbers are showing that, like, there's still a lot of learning loss, but that there has, you know, there has been some movement forward. I think it's really dependent on what grades the kids were in. Um, when the closures happened. Um, and so there's, you know, uh, it'll sort of be interesting to see the kids who were in third and fourth grade in 2020. Um, so a little bit older than my older daughter, because that is considered a very pivotal year for literacy. Um, the sort of cliche is like, until third grade, you are learning to read And after third grade, you're supposed to be reading to learn. So you're supposed to be able to sort of take in, um, in from, you know, when you're reading, it's, it's not just about like, you know, sounding out the letters and and reading all the words. It's like, you're supposed to actually be be gleaning information and retaining that information from the material you're reading. And, you know, the, for the kids who struggle, um, it is looking pretty rough for them, at least anecdotally, um, you know, in one of the pieces I did, uh, this math teacher that I, I talked to for a long time who works in a, a title one school, I was thinking that for some reason I was about to call it a division one school. And I was like, no, that's not right. A title Sports, one school. Yeah. 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 A title one school was saying like, he, he teaches seventh and eighth grade math. Uh, these kids can't read the word problems. And they were the kids who were in, you know, third and fourth grade uh, when the pandemic started. And so they their reading is still at like, you know, a second or third grade level. Uh, and that is alarming. And I think people should be alarmed by that. And whether it's high dose tutoring or, you know, whatever it is, like that should be something that that we are attacking as best that we can, because you can't, you know, again, there are not just for those individual kids, I think that there are real societal um, problems that are going to happen if we have a generation of kids where a lot of people do not have basic literacy and reading comprehension. Yeah, 
And maybe this is another part of the negative feedback loop where like the, the fact that there are so many kids out there that do lack reading comprehension because of things like school closures, maybe that also is like, it exacerbates and makes teachers like it, it exacerbates the problems with regards to teacher supply and makes, makes it even more demoralizing to be a teacher right now. Yeah, I mean, I've made this point before. And, um, you know, all the experts I, I talk to always want to make this clear. Um, the teacher shortage issue is very localized. So it's like, again, it's often the haves and have nots. Like suburban high income places will never want for teachers. They will always be able to fill those roles. It is working in more challenging schools with more challenging populations. Uh, and rural schools that have problems. Um, and it also is, you know, in parts of the country where teacher pay is very poor, um, that those are places that have shortages. So I think it's, and then and then there's sort of uh, an issue with um, STEAM topics. So, you know, there are fewer qualified science and math teachers. But again, the shortages are not writ large. Um, they are very specific. Uh, uh, just to and, be clear, STEAM is the acronym STEM, but with arts inside, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there are specific types of teacher shortages. There are specific places that have shortages. Uh, but, you know, it's not everywhere. And, you know, what I did also write about was, like, fewer people want to become teachers. But um, I've also written about the fact that, demographically speaking, there's fewer kids. Uh, and there are going to be, you know, as the fertility rate drops, there's going to be just, unless we increase immigration, which there does not seem to be much of an appetite to do. If um, only. Yeah, uh, there, that, that sort of demo, I, I don't, teacher demoralization is actually a bigger issue right now than necessary. And then you have these specific shortage problems in places. Does that make sense? Like, so a lot like, of teachers... Maybe it's like in, the like how how much morale you have matters more than the strict number. Is that it? Well, I think it's like again, it's like the problems are in different places. So many places are struggling to have enough teachers. That is a hundred percent true. Uh, and then other places where they're not struggling to attract teachers, they might still have somewhat of a morale problem. They're not quitting every day. They're not like walking off the job, but um, they are more demoralized than they used to be. Yeah. So is it so like which areas tend to have the supply problem and which areas tend to have the demoralization problem? Low income and rural areas, to make a generalization, have the supply problem. Uh, the demoralization problem seems to be everywhere. Uh, and that is uh, just because as I said before, there's just this sort of lack of respect. I think parents, not all parents, what I've found through my reporting is like, it's really a, a five to 10% dismissive, obnoxious, harassing parent who make the job very unpleasant. And because are those of social like, media- Those are like the parents that would just constantly refresh infinite campus just to make like to scrutinize every single grade. It's those people, it's the people who want to make everything politicized and so are, you know, saying, like, you know, a high school teacher is teaching a book that they have taught for 40 years and no one has said anything, but one parent has decided this is inappropriate and they can really make life very miserable um, because social media, they can amplify it. 
Um, so it could be if they decided to do this, uh, make life extremely unpleasant um, for individual teachers. And I think that that has a chilling effect on morale. So it's like they all read the news. And so it's like you see, oh, this teacher in the next district over from me was teaching this book that I thought was completely benign. And they're, you know, they're getting their life blown up over it. So I think that is a sort of part of the demoralization. Yeah. So how and about, I, sorry, go ahead. And I think, oh, no, no. And I was just going to say, I think the pandemic years were generally very difficult for everybody. Right. Um, but I think teachers particularly, it was difficult for them. So I do think that there is also a little bit of a feeling of like, and I hear this from people in the medical field as well. It's just like, oh, we had this really tough period and we had no time to recover from it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So I guess when it comes to like, so maybe like all of these things, the way that we would see student absenteeism is that like for some teachers, it's just the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah, but I guess going back to the culture war, what are some like specific examples of like like moments where a teacher teaches something and then because of the culture war, they get in trouble with it and then it causes a chilling effect that ends up demoralizing teachers further? Uh, yeah, I think what was the question about that? Um, so what are some specific examples of chilling effects as a result of the culture war and the way that it um, has a bad, like a demoralizing effect on teachers? I think it just creates this level of, of fear. Um, it keep, it creates this level of like when you're entering the classroom um, that you have to be nervous about anything you say sort of being blown up into your, in your face. Um, so I think it just heightens the level of sort of day-to-day -day anxiety that teachers are, are facing. And it's, you know, there is a bit, and I do think, while I think it comes more from the right, I do think that there is a left aspect of it too. Um, I think, you know, again, if, if someone is unhappy with something that happens at school, uh, and someone and a parent decides to make it into a social media issue like that is stressful <laughs> yeah. that is a, a stressful thing to have sort of hanging over your head yeah so i guess um circling back that you cited this one um study that was like from a working pa paper that was published back in november 2022 by the annenberg institute for school reform at brown university so i'm gonna so to, according to that working paper the current state of the teaching profession is at or near its lowest levels in 50 years. Um, and so obviously we've gone over some of the reasons, whether it be the culture war or just students and not showing up and all of that. But I guess according to the authors of the study, what are some of the other causes for the decline in respect, interest, and satisfaction for teachers right now? Um, so, I mean, part of it is just money. Um, you know, they are in many places need to have master's degrees and almost every other profession where you have spent all of this money getting an education, um, often accruing student debt and, and getting a master's, uh, you just make more money, <laughs> You like brass tacks, like the, it's, it's, you know, when undergraduates were looking at the sort of list of things they could possibly do and looking at the cost benefit analysis um 
teaching just, I think, has fallen down the list in that cost-benefit analysis. Um, and I think part of it is because the idea, there's an overall lack of respect for teachers. And so teachers are less respected than there used to be. And when you have that lack of respect along with the low pay, that combination just makes it seem like a not very attractive profession for not everyone, but more people. Because yeah. a lot of people would be going into it because, you know, oh, I I think that this would be meaningful or, you know, I think I would be good at it. Um, and, uh, you know, people are still doing it for those reasons. Um, but if you're sort of on the fence and you're choosing among a variety of professions, uh, I think for those people who may have considered it, the again, the cost, the low respect just serve as a disincentive. Um, so I think it's the declining respect for teaching uh, is the bigger factor. Yeah, but I guess the whole thing about how you you basically need a master's degree to get into education, I think this this provides a neat segue for me to reference Maddie Glazius because he he wrote a recent piece about teacher licensure where he brought up the idea that like drastically reducing requirements for teacher licensure would be a good way to help with teacher supply without actually like providing meaningful decreases in the quality of teaching. So I'm going to quote his article right now. Quote Emergency measures adopted in many states to recruit additional teachers during the pandemic provide further evidence for something many analysts have long believed. Many of the current teacher training and licensing requirements have no real benefit, and getting rid of a lot of them would save time and money for various stakeholders and expand the potential supply of teachers without reducing quality. That doesn't on its own make schools better but it does make it easier to do basically anything else, including raising teacher quality, cutting class size, or reallocating money to other priorities like climate control, air quality, and school meals, end quote. So what do you think of this idea that we could potentially like just reduce the requirements to get like a teacher license? Uh, I don't know enough about it. I think it's definitely a provocative and interesting idea. Um, I will say in my own reporting, I found there are some some education schools who are trying to cut down the amount of time it takes to get the 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 certification so at it used to be like you know you're doing it in five years it's a four-year undergrad and then the master's and they're trying to put some of the requirements for student teaching into the like sprinkle it throughout the other years so that you're still getting the same amount of experience um in the classroom without having to pay for that additional year. So I think it is a good time to have innovations um, in terms of how we do things, whether or not that is the right innovation, couldn't begin to tell you, but I think we do need to innovate in how we do it to make it sort of more tolerable for people financially. Um, you know, and I think that this, this is a problem actually that's been blooming since 2008 when so many state legislatures cut uh, funding to state schools. Um, so it just used to be way more affordable um, to go to, you know, your in-state university. Um, and that it has, you know, numerous trickle-down effects that they've no school basically, no state basically has uh, put the funding back to where it was in 2008, which is why part of why tuition costs have skyrocketed everywhere. 
Um, but this is one of the knock-on effects. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So I, are you ready to like hard pivot onto talking about grade inflation? Yeah, um, let's do it. <laughs> all right. So yeah. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about how grade inflation has risen quite massively over the past few years and some of its implications for both students and teachers? So um, many schools and no one keeps track of number like I, I it, you know if any of your listeners have a place where someone's keeping track I would love to hear it but as far as I could tell and report there is no place that keeps track of how many districts are doing this but many districts have put in a rule where you cannot get a zero on an assignment the lowest you can get is a 50 it's called a 50 percent floor um, or they have you know revamped their grading systems so that you know the lowest you can you just can't fail even if you don't hand in something you can't fail and then there's other things where it's like you get multiple retries on tests and um you know there's just a lack of ability to hold students who are really putting in the bare minimum accountable um and then there's a lot of you know just passing kids on to the next grade whether or not they've actually shown that they um have the skills that they are supposed to have to ascend to the next grade. Um, so it's sort of a combination of, of policies implemented uh, without any data showing that they actually work. So, I mean, the idea behind the 50% grading floor is that zeros just really discourage people. Um, and if we make it harder for kids to fail, um, they will be less discouraged and more motivated. And there just is no evidence for that idea. And in fact, the evidence that does exist shows that uh, these policies really only help kids who are already doing well, <laughs> because mm -hmm. they're less stressed out about every single assignment. Um, or And also, you know, if they really do just screw up one time and really bomb a quiz or something, it's not going to just, you know, they will get a 50 instead of a zero. So it won't tank their average so much. So it's like, it it is not doing Number one, they implemented it with no real information that it would work. Number two, it's not even helping the kids that they claim to want to help. Uh, so I personally just don't think it's a good idea. And it also, from the teachers I spoke to, they really don't like it because they feel like uh, they can't hold kids accountable uh, in any way. And the kids know it. Um, yeah. So I heard many stories about kids who were just not, they, they weren't, they didn't, do any more work than they would have to do to not fail so they would know like i can just not do any of this work and i'll get a 50 not a zero and if i do you know three out of seven assignments um i'll still get a 75 and that's fine and i don't think that is the outcome we want yeah but then i guess if grades are no longer a useful metric for understanding how well kids are performing like what data do we have to see how like talented students are in the present compared to how talented they were like say 10 years ago standardized tests yeah, uh, well, the NAEP uh, they you know again I am old school I think the SAT is a data point that is helpful and useful uh, as you know my colleague David Leonhardt wrote a whole thing about I I totally oh yeah I, lo I love David Leonhardt's work on the SAT it's fabulous yeah I mean I just was very commonsensical and I it's just like yeah so you know eight APs uh for high school students AP tests international baccalaureate tests like those things um you know 
are year over year and you can sort of see how the kids are doing over time. Um, I just don't, you know, I, I find the whole anti-standardized testing movement to be misguided uh, because you, the example I give in a story I recently did about K through 12 standardized testing uh, was, you know, I don't know if you followed the uh, reading wars or the sort of reading kerfuffle in the United States where um, they phonics went out of fashion and they started uh, doing this other method to teach kids to read. And it took 30 years for them to figure out like, oh, actually kids are not learning to read with this other method. We need to go back to phonics. And without standardized tests, we would have had no idea <laughs> that all of these kids, that this new method wasn't working and these kids weren't learning to read. So it's like, I just don't, we need to know these things. Like they're not everything. I still believe you need a holistic picture of a child's, um, you know, performances and, you know, great. I still think, I don't think even with great inflation that they're a completely meaningless rubric. Uh, but it's like, you need all of these things to understand a full picture of both an individual student and schools and districts and the country. Yeah. But then I guess I want to zero in a little bit. It's like, what are the specific criticisms that people have about, say, the SAT? And then what are the like the counter criticisms that people like you or David Leonhardt or Freddie DeBoer might have to those criticisms specifically? Well, I mean, I think the biggest criticism is that uh, higher income families, the children in those families do better uh, on those tests. Uh, and the, the criticism is that there must be something wrong with the test. Um, rather than, you know, kids who are from sort of stable families that are college educated and value education, of course, are going to do better uh, in school because they have the sort of familial and cultural support to do better. Um, it's not about how smart they are. It doesn't mean that kids from higher income families are smarter. It means that they just by the time they get to taking tests are much you know, have so many more skills educationally and tend to go to better schools and tend to have environments that are more stable and conducive to doing better on tests. So I don't think it's the, I don't think you can blame tests for revealing massive social inequality that we all know exists. Yeah. So I think it's like, don't fix the test, fix the social problems that are leading to these massive you know, my sort of most radical educational idea is that the most, the thing that you could do to help kids most and close gaps uh, on testing and in education is uh, have a universal basic income for families below a certain uh, <laughs> level. Because I think a lot of these problems are downstream of, po of poverty, of extreme poverty. Um, and until you fix that and you allow parents to have the time to be more involved in their kids' lives, um, you know, that's the school. You can't ask the schools to fix these problems that are much bigger societal problems. Yeah. So I guess things like when it comes to like disparities and test performance between different classes or different races, they're revealing inequalities in society rather than like perpetuating them, essentially. Yeah. Yeah.
Um, so I guess, I guess if if we were to like accept the whole thing about how like great inflation is making great less useful, not completely useless, but less useful, and like standardized tests are a better measure for understanding how well students are doing in lieu of that. To what extent? I guess then the question is when it comes to great inflation specifically. To what extent do you think our current bout of great inflation is a product of those those parents we mentioned earlier, parents that don't really want to see their students fail and will constantly nag teachers or the administration to make sure that doesn't happen? Um, I think it's a small part of it. I think the bigger part of it is, you know, basically states, and this is, I think, this is an opinion based on reading and evidence I don't think it's like a hundred percent fact it's what I think um a lot of states like we are going to set a goal of 90 percent of students are going to graduate from high school and instead of getting the students to whatever the current standard was and having them actually improved they just lowered the standards or they changed the standards and i think that that is what happened in a lot of places um so i think that that is the biggest culprit okay so then i guess the next question is going to be kind of blunt do you think that we need to like fail more students yes <laughs> i do yeah um because you... it, Go like ahead. if you're if if a passing grade is not evidence that you actually learned anything like, what are we even, what are we doing here? Like, I just, it's like, it's not good for society that kids are not learning things that they should be learning. Um, and I, I, I just think lowering standards, um, because the standards, I, I, I think compared to, again, our peer nations, the American standards are not unreachable. Um, so I think, you know, just lowering standards is, is a mistake. Yeah, that reminds me. I remember hearing from Freddie DeBoer a while back that when it comes to American student performance compared to other countries, like most of our students tend to do about as well or even better than a lot of comparable first world nations. The main problem is like the bottom 20% that do so horribly that they drag our averages down. Are yeah. they like, are they like the main like people that like a are and or should be like the main focus of these types of conversations with regards to things like great inflation or teacher uh, shortages? I mean, I think that they should be the main focus of conversation into poverty. Like, I, I think it's just like the poverty where all of these issues are downstream of the fact that there is, you know, a group of Americans who are just living in dire circumstances and that we have no safety net for them. And so building up that safety net for the parents of these children so that they are able to care for them better is just like, we got to start there. So it's like, I almost think it's just like, we are trying, it's like, the, in our, my house is on fire. And it's like, I'm talking about one thing in the house that burned up instead of like the entire structure yeah it's like you're gone. missing the the burning forest for the burning tree and uh, like right in front of you exactly so it's like i i think the problem is so profound that it's like why are we even talking about how schools can solve it they can't we have to solve the problem from birth and that like they you know 
we don't have health care for mothers. They are not getting adequate prenatal care. Start, literally start there. I know that maybe sounds extreme, but like the health, like from day one, if you are living in extreme poverty, your health is worse. And so we need to, you know, do so much more for mothers and parents and families to make sure that once kids are entering the public school door in kindergarten, that they have been set up for a good life. And I don't think that we're doing that. So that's why I said my most radical educational idea is to give universal basic income. What would you, what would you say to the idea that something like the expanded child tax credit might do something analogous to that? Yeah, I'm, I'm for any potential solution that is, you know, getting more money to lower income families without them having to take on more hours of work. Because, you know, at some kids, especially like small kids, you know, need high quality care, it doesn't necessarily have to be from, you know, their mother or their father, a hundred, you know, a hundred percent of the time, like, high quality center care, also really good, also really expensive, like, it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you, kids who are little need high quality care. However, we get that to them. Yeah. So it is so expensive that if we can, if, if a child's tax credit could allow lower income parents to be more present instead of working longer hours, like, great. Love that. Um, so again, it's just, I think that we are asking schools to fix problems that start way before they're ever even entering school. Yeah. And they, yeah, so they start way before, like, so basically what we're seeing, like a lot of, maybe it's the thing that we're like, a lot of these discussions, they're downstream of much, like much bigger policy directions for the U S in general. And so I guess you sort of have to zoom out if you want to understand it or else you're just, you're just looking at the the burning tree instead of the burning forest. Yeah. yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that is my feeling about it. And that is, you know, exactly as Freddie said, the reason that this bottom 20% does so much worse is because unlike our peer nations, we don't have universal health care. We don't have a lot of the social safety net things that make, you know, not having a ton of money just much, much harder in the United States than it is in other places where, you know, the sort of basic, you're, you don't have to worry quite so much about your very most basic needs not being met. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. That's, that is a, that, to say that's a huge shame would be, um, I think, undercutting it just a little bit. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do, obviously, because it, you know, has been part of my beat for so long. I mean, again, um, just the lack of care that, mothers get during pregnancy and postpartum if they don't have health insurance or you know obviously you, you can get on um health insurance when you're pregnant if you know to do that but they're not getting regular prenatal checkups in the same way that higher income women do um you know they're not getting adequate postpartum checkups because often they will miss their six-week postpartum visit because they have no one to care for their other kids like there's all these ways in which they are falling through the cracks of just basic physical care that um, I just find so, so preventable and so sad and unfair. Yeah. yeah and, and yeah, 
so then we could like continue plugging things like UBI, healthcare, or, or like the expanded CTC. And you could also do stuff like streamline WIC and like turn that into cash, which would probably be orders of magnitude, like much more tolerable for them. Yeah. But I yeah. just don't think that there is any way we are going to solve any of the educational problems unless without this stuff. And I think that it is part of why teachers are so burnt out is because there is this expectation that they should be able to fix it for a 15 year old who has had so many, you know, has not been able to have the same things that other children have up to that point. And that's like, you know, it's not that it's not the Michelle Pfeiffer movie. This is real life, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. like you can't, it's putting too much on them. And I think that is part of that demoralization and burnout. It's like, they can't fix all that. Yeah. But then I guess, um, so when it comes to like the ways in which all of these things sort of like cycle in on each other, maybe what would you say are like some of the, like the broader consequences for like students when it comes to like grade inflation, student absenteeism, teacher demoralization, like the, the problems when it comes to poverty in America. So like, what would you say are like some of the, like the worst case scenario, like consequences in the ways that it might have an effect on stu like students, both in terms of like, like learning less and in terms of like their behavior overall. Well, I mean, I think it's like you get into virtuous cycles and you get into vicious cycles. So in an ideal, if things go better, it's like the teachers are showing up to, to school and not being so depleted that they can't deal with, you know, the day to day, which is very challenging and stressful. Um, and if the, and the kids are coming regularly to school and they are fed enough and they, you know, can, can focus as to the best of their ability. Um, and they're creating like, teachers and students having like a real relationship and trusting each other is actually really, really important. Um, and the less kids are in school, the the less likely that sort of trust bond is able to be built. So it's like either you can, we will get out of the vicious cycle of kids not coming and, you know, not trusting and not being part of sort of a community um which, you know, schools also are like, that is part of what is happening every day that kids are part of this like greater community that is meaningful to them. Um, you know, it could kind of go either way, either, you know, we will get out of this vicious cycle of kids not coming. And then when they do come, the behavior is bad and the teachers get more and more demoralized and burnt out because they're not seeing the same group of kids every day and, and building the dynamic because classrooms are also dynamics, right? Like the different kids, it's, and it's different every year, different every class. Um, so, you know, there, yeah. it could go in either way. We're yeah. getting, get more of the virtual cycle, virtuous cycle or more of the vicious cycle. Yeah. But then that makes me think of like the whole, like, you know, the whole Richard Reeves thesis about like how boys are struggling in school in terms of like, because of like biological differences. I wonder if like the whole thing, like the whole vicious cycle about the way that it might affect student behavior might end up having really, really adverse effects on like boys attending school. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I worry about that for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't have any solutions. I wish I did. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I am interested in his like, you know, different starting ages for boys and girls. I mean, I have two girls. Uh, my older daughter is born in December. And so she is always the youngest in her class. Uh, and she still tells me that all the boys are annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I think feels it should ostensibly be even less of a difference since she is younger than almost all of them. 
but you know, there these differences are real in terms of maturity levels. And I will say she is an old soul. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I think it might be particularly exacerbated for her, but like, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, again, I, what a positive thing or something I would like to see coming out of this moment that I think many of us can recognize as somewhat of a crisis is like bold ideas. Let's try some things. Let's try yeah. some different things in a way that is we're actually tracking the outcomes because that was a frustrating thing that I found in a lot of the research where it's like a school district would try a new experiment, but then they just would leave it permanently. They would not, there would be no follow-up to see if it actually worked, if it was better for the kids. It, you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. you can't just implement these things. They have to be implemented well. And with like, a, a, say like, we're going to do X experiment for three years we're going to compare, you know, we're going to have good, but like all of this costs money, you know, like it's, yeah. it's, I'm, I'm not suggesting any of this is easy. It is not easy. It is very hard and it is expensive. <laughs> yeah. But, and like, like you need to like retune your mind so that it's not, instead of like having a set structure, you have to like constantly, like always be willing to improvise and like always understand, like, how do I like sl very slightly tweak things at any given moment, essentially. Yeah. And I mean, you know what I feel for, I am sure being a superintendent is an impossible and thankless job right now. It is not a job I would ever want to do because there are all these competing pressures for any administrator. They're not just dealing with like the parents and the teachers and the students. They're also dealing with politics, right? They're having to deal with state legislatures and like all of this different and like, you know, and all the, the, all the dumb culture war stuff on both the left and the right. Right. So, yeah. like, I understand why doing anything like this is so hard because if you did an experiment and it doesn't work, you're getting fired. It's not like there is this, like, welcoming environment to, like, experimentation and change. No, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> there is, like, so much pressure towards inertia. Yeah, so you much know? pressure in terms of, like, you do your own punch clock job instead of, like, constantly like maybe it's like we need to think less in terms of like this is like very intricately made classical music and more of this is just like jazz improvisation in terms of like constantly switching up our approach um yeah yeah, yeah. it's really yeah. tough yeah so i guess like the like the best case scenario would be something where like if we were to like take Richard Reeves, like the whole thing about like redshirting boys and having them start a year later, we need to like constantly have ideas as bold as that basically on a regular basis if we want to make things significantly better, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess um, I, I don't really want to end this podcast on a dour note. Um, well, so I will tell you, I, I will ahead. tell you every conversation that I, every reporting conversation I have with an educational researcher, they apologize because they're like, this is so depressing. I know that it is so depressing. There's just not a lot of good news right now. And that is the way it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But if, if I had to end this on a, like a dour note with regards to like, just like teachers and students and like how how bad a lot of it is. Um, I guess my final question would be like, what are some like movies or TV shows that you would recommend to the audience? Just in general about anything. Yeah. Just about um, anything. My, I love the holdovers, 
which is about a school. <laughs> of course, um, yeah. But it's a private it's a private boarding school in 1970. Uh, so definitely not applicable to any modern issues. But it's like the performances are great. It's really funny and sad. Um, I love the holdovers. Uh, I'm trying to think what else have I liked recently? Oh, um, I'm a big I, I wrote a little blog post for the Times about this. But like, I love any documentary about cults. I just, it's a niche interest of mine. My second novel is about a cult. Um, but uh, the best one I've seen in a long time is on Max. And it is called Love Has Won, The Cult of Mother God. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, Jessica Garros, um, thank you so much for taking the time to come back onto the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye. Yeah. Um, I guess I just wanted to end with like one question I might put in the podcast. I might leave it off record. But like theoretically, in the in the very off chance that I might get a chance to talk to Richard Reeves. Is mm -hmm. there anything that you would like prefer that I suggest to him in terms of like policy proposals? No, I mean, like I said, I think, you know, I think his idea is interesting. I've talked to Richard before for other topics. Um, I think like the idea, dream hoarder stuff. No, I talked to him about the boys stuff. I talked to him about like, um, what was the topic? Oh, it was um, in the United States. Like there was a moment at a Senate hearing where the head of the Teamsters Union and a, a United States senator were literally threatening to punch each other in the face. Did you get catch this? Yeah, was that the, was, the Jan Six thing or something else? No, it was totally different. Um, <laughs> I'll I'll send you the piece I I wrote about it and I talked to Richard for. It. But like, uh, it basically just like, how do we tell the the idea that I was trying to explain in the piece is like. How, when people are, when men are acting like this, um, someplace like the Senate floor, and there's no punishment for them. Like, how do we teach and model for young men that, like, that this is not an okay way to act? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like, all they're doing is getting rewarded for this behavior that we know is, like, not pro-social behavior, not good for society. Like, I'm sending you this piece. It's uh, <laughs> the the headline is "Congress is in a schoolyard." Time to deal with toxic immaturity. Like, yeah. because it's not even to me. I'm like, this isn't even about masculinity. This is about you're acting like actual children, and I'm embarrassed yeah. for you. <laughs> but like, do you think Richard? Do you think Richard would would respond to that by saying that like we need like a more positive version of masculinity in order to be able to deal with issues like this? Yeah, yeah, that's what he said, and I think he's probably right. I have no idea how to begin to do with it, do that, yeah. but I'm glad that he's you know researching it. Um, but no, I mean, I don't, you know, I think, I like you know, as far as I know, in terms of the education stuff, like the red shirting of boys is is the I I haven't read that. I didn't read the other book. Um about the dream hoarders. Um, so I, I can't comment on that, but I, I have read him, his books about, uh, I read of boys and men. And so, um, you know, I don't know besides what his other ideas are in terms of education. So, yeah. 
Um, but the, this this question that we just this all the stuff we had right after the outro. Um, would you mind if I included it in the final product? No, it's fine. All right. Yeah. Thanks again for coming on. This was a blast. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. All right. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend as well. See you.